Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today for our PomoCon series, I am joined by my friend Scott Beauchamp. We have already talked a couple of times about horror movies, about a wonderful essay you published on horror and Russell Kirk in Modern Age a while back. But now we're returning with a very different sort of conversation that treats certain similar themes, the questions of existential meaning, the questions of what makes us human and how we deal with it. But in this case, Scott, I am very grateful for your presence because you just wrote a book about war as an American facing the 21st century that's unlike any of the other recent war books that I have read or war movies, and I am a great fan of both. So thanks a lot for joining me, and please, first of all, introduce yourself and the kind of cultural criticism you publish to prepare our audience. Uh, Well, thanks for having me, and I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you. I write mainly these days cultural criticism, as you said, and reviews, things like that. I used to write a lot more journalism about war in the military. I still do occasionally, but it's something I've sort of moved away from in the past few years. So this writing this book has felt personally like a summation of a period of my life. And I should say the book is called Did You Kill Anyone? Published by Zero Books, and it comes out uh, February 1st, 2020. And I'm really happy to be here to talk to you about it. And this will be quite a conversation. It's unlike most of the stuff that we usually do. And it's not even simply a conversation about the book, because this is indeed a very serious life transforming experience. And at the same time, it seems to be what it took for you to really come of age, to really understand yourself as an American and to understand the country that you're part of. That's not something that most people experience in any dramatic fashion. War, of course, has a wonderful habit of focusing the mind, to paraphrase Dr. Johnson. But it's not simply that war is such a shocking thing, that America going to war after the Cold War shook a lot of people out of complacency and scared a lot of people for all the horrors that have happened. There is something else that's perhaps even more interesting. War in some ways is good, or to the good maybe is a better way of putting it. You seem to have become a serious man and a serious thinker because of war. And the experience of reading the book is the experience of a young man finding himself, discovering what it means to be seriously thoughtful about experiences which are hard even to describe adequately, since they are so full of the fears and the anger that America has lived through these last 20 years. And of course, also simply inaccessible to most of us. They're only things we may have seen in a movie, and that's of course no kind of experience at all. It's everything in quotation marks in the movies. So this is a very difficult thing to get a grasp of, but I figure that in your case, it's especially interesting and perhaps more accessible because you both talk about your experience and about what it means in a more general or abstract sense. You're forever thinking to your studies as a thinker, to authors who have revealed the phenomena that you're dealing with and in a way made them more accessible for those of us who have not had those experiences. And at the same time, you refer to parts of American society that may elucidate or more frequently muddy the waters about experiences that are very important. So it was a very unusual reading and it sent me as well constantly thinking to what does it mean for war to clarify what's wrong with a society, not just what's right with a society. And furthermore, it sent me thinking about the effort of cultural criticism, all the authors you bring into your book in order to show, as it were, how serious the problems are and how deep our thinking must go if we are to understand what's happening to us. I was impressed in your book with the idea that the military is a kind of model community, especially rare and especially necessary in America, for what it would mean for people to live together as human beings. 
Well, thank you for your kind characterization of the book and and my efforts. And I I should say, just to give a little background biographical information about myself, that I enlisted in the Army when I was 21 years old. And this was in 2005, when the war, even at that time, felt like it had been going on for quite some time. And, And this was when there was a lot of combat happening in Iraq as well as Afghanistan. And actually, Iraq was more dangerous than Afghanistan at this point for an American soldier, well, probably for anyone. So when I joined, even though, you know, in retrospect, the war hadn't really even gotten started, so to speak, it felt like it had been going on for a long time. And I said I was 21 when I joined. And again, that sounds young to most listeners, I'm sure. But when I was in basic training, they called me old man. I wasn't a teenager. I was surrounded by boys who were 17 or 18 years old, and I could legally drink alcohol. So there there was, I, I felt... Uh, <laughs> You know, I was seeing things from a distance even as I joined. And I should also say that I joined the infantry. Anyone who knows anything about the military knows that that's a minority within a minority when it comes to serving in the military. When you're in the infantry, there's a lot of stories you tell yourself about how lazy and weak other branches are and other jobs in the military are. You know, uh, we're just so much better than artillery or whatever. So already I felt like I was plunged immediately into this very small world. It was a lot to take in, obviously, even before I deployed to Iraq, it was a lot to take in. And it has taken me years to make sense of these experiences. You know, maybe some people are insightful enough and intelligent enough to, in the moment, see into the depths of things. But I guess I'm just a slow learner. It takes me a while. I have to really ruminate on things. But I I did. And so I deployed to Iraq twice. The first deployment was about 15 months, which is a really long time. To give you something to compare it to, in the Army, deployments are usually 12 months. For the Marines, they're usually six months. And we got our deployment extended for a number of months. This was in 2006, 2007, which was when the combat in Baghdad itself, which is where I was deployed, was really heating up when the so-called surge happened, if people remember that. That was my first deployment, right? So my second deployment was 12 months, and that was in the northern Diyala province, pretty close to the border of Iran, very rural area. And it wasn't as violent in the traditional sense. There weren't many gunfights or anything like that. But it was more, um, <laughs> I guess, just it was more of a dark comedy. It was just we were patrolling country roads because insurgents were placing bombs on the roads because we were patrolling them. So everyone just got blown up all the time, Uh, including myself once. Ran over uh, double-stacked Soviet-era landmines, which was, it was interesting. And so these are my experiences. And it's really, when I came home from the war and from the army, I was in the army about five years. I went to New York because my wife was living there and working there. So that's just where I ended up. And I can't really emphasize what a drastic and what a dramatic shift that was to go from enlisted in the infantry in a war zone to Brooklyn in 2010. You know, if if I wasn't trying to find some sort of purchase on my own experiences before, I certainly was then. And I have to say, I think that was the real beginning of the book, coming to New York and realizing that, you know, I, I had very intense feelings about my experiences. And I had very um, incoherent, but (laughs) still nonetheless ideas about my experiences. And when I came to New York, I had to reevaluate everything. The people I talked to, obviously, no one I knew in New York had served in the military. I I would tell people that I served in the military, and they looked at me as if I said, you know, I, I had just come back from a trip to Mars or something. You know, a lot of people actually did say, really? Are you are you joking? No, I'm not not joking. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a joke. <laughs> you know, that really was the beginning of me thinking about my experiences, not just as a soldier or my experiences in combat, but my experiences as a human, as an American. And so when I did decide to finally write about the war and what it meant to me, well, I had, I had read a lot of books about people's war experiences, particularly in our recent wars, the quote-unquote forever wars. And many of them are fantastic. There are so many wonderful books, novels about people and their experiences. But to my mind, none of them really spoke to what I was experiencing in New York at the time. They all seem sort of confined in some way to the war itself, 
there was this stoic veneer over the text where it was like, you were almost writing to impress the people that I was meeting in New York about your experiences in the war without actually dissecting them. And so what occurred to me was, and I said this recently in an essay I wrote for The Daily Caller, when you're in, in a war, you have this, I mean, obviously, things are terrible all the time. That's just how it is. Not all things, but things generally are terrible. And so you dream of home. And this dream of home takes on a certain kind of reality that real home, when you get there, can't really sustain. It doesn't match up. The fantasy doesn't hold. And you're disappointed. You're disappointed in the culture that you return to generally. I think you're disappointed in the callousness of people and, and their willful misunderstanding of certain things. And you realize that maybe some of these notions you had about what was good you're experiencing because of the war and that you never actually experienced them in civilian life. And so I really wanted to focus on that. And so the title of the book, Did You Kill Anyone? I begin the book with a series of questions that people ask me when I return home. And one of them was, and this was only from a certain kind of person and never, never, uh, <laughs> never a coastal elite, was, did you kill anyone? That one's pretty easy to deflect or just answer if you feel like it. But uh, the question that unnerved me even more than that one was, why did you join? Because where I'm from, I'm from Missouri originally, where I, that's where I was born and raised. Men join the military. That's what men do you serve your country. I mean, I can't think of a generation in recent memory in my own family where there hasn't been the patriarch of the nuclear family going to war at some point. I mean, we have postcards that my great-grandfather sent home from World War One. It wasn't a question of like, why did you join? It was just a question about the specifics of which branch you joined or where you served or something like that. So I was really thrown for a loop by that question. And it sort of became the symbolic center of this book. And I was like, well, why did I join? And what did I get out of it? And so I think I, I just kind of worked outwards from there. And that led me, my own experiences led me to larger existential ideas and philosophical ideas about human flourishing, what it means to be a human. As I said, I'm a fan of books and movies about war, and I realized reading your book that for a while I had been waiting for such a book, that is to say, one that doesn't tell a story and therefore focus on particulars, but one that tries to look at those experiences and raise them to a certain level of generality, not just in order, as you and I have suggested, to make these experiences available to people who have not had them and in a way to justify them, because now we do live in a world where war requires justification, and serving in a war requires justification. And in a way, even the simple patriotism involved in going to war requires justification. It may be a strange situation, but there it is. And partly it's something else that war is so interesting because of how rare it is. It's not the sort of thing for which a man or a country can start preparing after it happens. You only know what it is after it happens, but you have to prepare for it long in advance, actually. And, of course, institutionally, America seems to be tolerably well prepared for war, just incapable of waging war adequately. But leaving the institutions of the state aside, the country doesn't seem at all prepared for war, or for war happening, or for how to talk about or what to do about war once it's over, if in some sense it's over, although in other senses of the world these wars are not over. So it's a very strange situation and also very new to America. The country used to know when it was at war and when it was not. And as you said, in a way, this meant passing down in the generations from people who fought the various wars of the country. Now, in a way, there's been a long peace. And in another way, the country is completely blind to the question of war. It's not just a shockingly rare event that is itself shocking. It's that people don't seem to know it's happening. And seen from the other side, that is to say, trying to see things from your perspective reading the book, it occurred to me that there is indeed a lot that's wrong with a society that makes it blind to the question of war. We should tell our audience some of the chapter headings in your book. Ritual, community, hierarchy, tradition, honor. These are things that you'd expect to hear about when you talk about war, but they're not in fact much talked about. We have certain phrases that deal with these things, like the greatest generation, band of brothers, but we don't have any adequate portrayals or discussions that would at least help us understand what we're dealing with and what it is that is to say that war has to teach us. 
somehow. think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And I, and like you said earlier, I, I think that I personally didn't realize that until, as you said, it's something that you have to experience first and sort of realize in retrospect. So I think that for me, I began to see my military experiences, and I should maybe even say even more specifically combat experiences, as a type of being in the world or a type of experience that is not just ignored often in contemporary society, but I think actively disdained and perhaps in the kind of culture that we have completely denuded of any meaning. And I think in that sense, it is comparable to marriage, which again, my generation of Americans are engaging in less and less every day, having children the same. And ultimately, death, right? This desire to sort of live infinitely in some sort of weird digital afterlife. I think these are all connected. And I think they have to do with the denial of what it means to be an embodied human living in the world. And I think something I was trying to suss out with my book is that although many of these experiences, such as boredom, the first chapter is about boredom, appear on the surface or, you know, at first glance to be negative experiences, no one wants to be bored, they can actually be quite rich and rewarding if they're experienced sort of with the right orientation towards, again, I'll use the phrase human flourishing. So when I talk about boredom, I talk about seeing within the boredom a chance, an opportunity to become intimate with the maneuvers of your own mind, which is not something that you often get a chance to do in the world now. I mean, there's an entire economy that's like an attention economy, right? Predicated upon you never being bored. That doesn't mean you're entertained. It doesn't mean you're fascinated by whatever you're doing. It means you're clicking likes, you're tweeting, you're occupied. You're never bored. But I think within that boredom, moving through it and suffering through it, there's a lot to be gained, including, I think, wisdom. Yeah, that's a Pascalian insight. Boredom discloses something to us how unsatisfied we are with being human, how aware we are of mortality, how everything that is available to us can't justify to us our inevitable mortality. It's fear of death that leads us to be bored to death with things, even though it would seem that nothing can be more inactive or inperspicuous than boredom. But in another way, it's actually very perspicuous or else we wouldn't dread it. Whereas in these other situations, when you're forced to be bored because there's nothing else to do, you're stuck with being yourself. And indeed, in this strange and powerful example you give in the chapter there about standing guard in a tower, what it means to not succumb to boredom, although you know you're bored to death because you're aware that at any point in the boredom, something terrifying might happen. Things are still boring. We are the kinds of beings we are with the kinds of habits we have. We find a lot of things boring. But there is also this very important purpose that forces you to hold on to your humanity in the sense of your faculties, your awareness, and indeed your purpose. It seems like you couldn't do it otherwise. I think that's right. You said the example I give of being in Tower Guard. You're bored, of course. That's happening. But you also have to be very aware of your surroundings and you have to do your job. And why you have to do your job is because if you fall asleep for a moment or you look away, someone could very easily have the opportunity to place an IED or a sniper could set up. And that could mean not just your death, but the death of a man that you know, someone you serve with. And knowing that, the responsibility of that, it sort of suffuses the boredom with a new life. To be bored with a purpose, I think, is an entirely different experience than just being bored at home because you don't have anything to do. Having that existential purpose is not something that I think most civilians have the privilege of ever experiencing, except in a few maybe rare law enforcement scenarios or something like that. Yeah, so I think that's the first thing that gave me a clue as to how your story develops, because the skills that were trained into you and the sense of purpose that moves a soldier and the habits of living together with other soldiers, all of them seem to be necessary for this to be bearable and in a strange sense rewarding. And at the same time, these things reinforce each other. Gradually, this picture emerges of a life to which there is not an alternative. A life where your fantasy isn't continuously telling you things are this way, but they could be otherwise. And maybe that otherwise is more charming or more fascinating. 
if not solid. There's a certain solidity to experiences, to habits and to opinions. And so thinking through this sort of boredom with a purpose, when you're still who you are, activated, animated in the way that you are because of what you have to do and the circumstances where you act, this somehow already announces all these other things, what it means to be trained for war, what it means to accept responsibility for the lives of other people and to accept at the same time to put your life in their hands through every gesture and every ceremony and every circumstance of living together. Yeah, I think that's right. And what it suggests and what you're describing is a, is a community, a community of people who are responsible for and to each other in the military, particularly in combat. That is your sense of purpose. It comes from the community. And I mentioned this in the book, but one of the worst things that uh, a superior or uh, a drill sergeant in basic training can say to you is, do you think you're an individual? I mean, it's just sort of the worst. <laughs> it's a real put down. You know, it's like, of course, I don't think I'm an individual like that would be ter- that would be a moral failing. Right. Which is, you know, you can't think of anything more opposite to how civilians in America are taught to think of themselves. Yes, indeed. And That's then you, the you land of individualism. Right, right. And you wonder about how that connects back to a community in the sense of purpose, or at least I did. <laughs> yeah, so when I was writing the book, I think I began with boredom chronologically as I was writing the book, and things just sort of unfolded from that experience. And I think I should say also that, you know, we've been talking a lot about my experiences and how they might relate to other people's experiences. But the book really isn't very biographically on the nose. It's not a memoir. I only talk about my experiences and then analyze them. I discuss my own experiences, I think, pretty sparingly as compared to other military books. But I would say that it's perhaps subtly autobiographical in the sense that I use a lot of quotes from books that I was reading at the time that I was deployed in order to explain my own experiences to myself. So when we deployed, we were allowed to take one giant black box with us. And most people just kept stuff from home or, you know, whatever, a football and some protein powder. And I, and I, mine was incredibly, it was just full of books and it was so stupid because it was just logistically really hard to move. And, you know, I had to ask people to help me, which, you know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> But it was worth it, you know, it was worth it. And so I use a lot of the books and actually quotes from some of the music even that I was listening to at the time to um, fan out from my own experiences into how other people have thought about these things. In the boredom chapter, particularly, I think I talk about David Foster Wallace and his yeah. unfinished book, The Pale King, which is about a branch of the Internal Revenue Service in rural Illinois and the experiences people have working there and how those experiences actually, in a funny way, paralleled my own. The sense that they had this purpose that they believed in working for the IRS and that suffused the boredom with a kind of meaning. The difference being, I think, that that was fiction, and I doubt that people at the IRS actually feel that sense of purpose. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it was a good fictional platform to explore my experience. Yeah, there is this sense of a developing writer and thinker looking in these books for something to confirm and to dig out from what's obvious in an experience, these other things that make the experience memorable or troubling or hard to grasp. It's not clear on reading it how much these quotes elucidate and how much they just mark something. This is something that you should be considering. It's something to experience that you have to try to grasp, but it's not obvious how to do so. In that sense, it seems to be more of an intellectual autobiography or an artistic autobiography than it is a war memoir. And yet there's something in the way you describe things that is on the one hand very much connected to the military and on the other hand connected to what's missing in life in America that seems to have sent you to the military. Honor and shame, your concluding chapter, would seem to be the things that are most important to the military that are least important to everyday life in America. Shocking deaths, unpredictable or perfectly anticipated, do happen in civilian life, even though they do not have the moral character they have in war. So then why is it that in war they have this moral character? Well, it is the mutual taking of responsibility. Civilian deaths are a matter of responsibility primarily in terms of, is anybody going to get sued? It's a terrible thing to say because of what it means for the families of people involved in this kind of violence. There's never any kind of public grieving public responsibility for what happens. 
it's on you. But Americans don't react that way to war. It's not like in other countries where terrorist attacks mean that, well, somebody's life is over and their families, maybe their lives are over. But after a few gestures, everybody else will go on with life because the state or the public or the nation is not going to take any responsibility for this. It's just on you. Americans don't do that. They go around fighting wars, including incredibly crazy or never-ending wars, but at least they do react in this way. There is a public taking of responsibility that wouldn't happen in most cases. Most cases can hope for maybe the sensationalism of the news, but that's about it. And the difference would seem to be how important shame and honor are in the living and dying in the military and the way they are absent from our lives otherwise. Yeah, the chapter on honor, the concluding chapter, was really the most difficult for me to write. And I think for that reason, it's something that we, you know, for, I don't know, a couple hundred years, our Western culture collectively has been trying their best to dampen the energy that honor has or, or the power of it. And it was really difficult for me to convince myself, I mean, not convince myself maybe, but it was difficult for me to fully accept how important honor actually was to me and how important it was to understanding the value of my own experiences. And I think that's because there is a bifurcation in America. And I don't want to make too much of this because it's just sort of a convenient way of thinking about American culture. But I think there are remnants of real honor culture in America. I think the family I come from has that. And the family, for instance, that my wife comes from doesn't. And so sometimes how I might respond to something scares her. (laughs) And quite frankly, because it's not rational. But I think something that I've come to accept is like rationality doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's no rational way to respond to certain existential threats or to certain experiences that sort of cut you to your core. It's difficult to say that this is a rational response and this is an irrational response. And when you have those kinds of experiences, how do you navigate that? And I would say that honor is probably the best way to navigate those experiences and to figure out how to respond to them. And again, you know, this is like a sort of a very nuanced discussion of honor. I think there have been different kinds of honor cultures. There are different ways of honor having an effect over society or of people embracing honor. So there's not just like, well, there's an honor culture and a culture that isn't. Throughout human history, there have been different ways of using and experiencing honor. But I think that when you come back to a place where, especially New York, where, you know, I mean, the people I knew, lovely people, very smart, very sensitive people, would sometimes make decisions that, coming from an honor culture myself and having experienced the honor culture sort of like ritualized and institutionalized within the military, disgusted me. And maybe that's too strong a word, but maybe not. Maybe maybe it did disgust me. So what I mean by that is like, there's a lot of sexual harassment in New York of women. And I wasn't used to that. I don't come from a place where that's just sort of like, that just happens casually on the street and no one says anything. And so, you know, I'd be walking by and a man would say something really, truly disgusting, truly vile to a woman. And I would maybe say something to him about it. And my friends would act like I was the crazy one for defending her honor. But, you know, it's like, it's, uh, am I? I don't know. The older I get, the more I think about those experiences, the more I think maybe maybe there is something to embracing an honorable response, using honor as a way to navigate your way through certain situations. Yeah, I think you're pointing to something very important here. We have, to a certain extent, surrendered because of what we want to get out of freedom. A sense of the wholeness of life, of the completeness of the being, of being human. Freedom means that you can make choices, and that means that everything that is this way could be another way, and is not obvious in advance, and sometimes it's not obvious through experience which way is better. So we end up saying, well, you know, you have to own your mistakes, or your mistakes help you find yourself, or what have you. And maybe they do, or maybe you just end up broken, who knows. Freedom creates a lot of corpses, not just beautiful, heartfelt stories. But what it doesn't have is any sense of the completeness of being human, whereas honor seems to be predicated on that. But honor requires something that freedom doesn't, which is a political guarantee. In the case of the military, it's always there. If nothing else, it's the political decisions about making war or not that belong to the people and their politicians. But so also, of course, with the Uniform Code of Military Justice and all sorts of smaller or less definable instances that depend on experience, 
But that doesn't seem to be possible in civilian life because so much is up to chance. You need so much freedom because so much of life is really up to chance. Nobody's going to help you out. No adult is going to guide you when you're young. When you're an adult, you can't necessarily rely on other people. And it's not clear that you even owe that to the next generation. Guidance, being an authority, taking responsibility for them. Freedom starts when Americans are very, very young. Choices start before you learn how to read and write. It's a strange way of living, and whatever it achieves by way of forcing you to focus on the present, it loses by taking away from your past and your future, a sense of continuity in time, a sense of who you are as a man. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what you say about freedom, I think oftentimes in the civilian world, we think freedom is sort of a constant negotiation, right? The only thing that truly matters is self-preservation. And anything beyond that is negotiable. And even so, self-preservation itself is also oftentimes negotiable. And so rules of conduct or what we owe each other the bottom falls out from under them, right? And there's no way of really deciding how important one thing is over another when you are living at least with the belief that you have absolute freedom of self. Everything is sort of comparable and nothing has any weight. I'm thinking here of the uh, Elliot Smith lyrics, you can do what you want to whenever you want to, though it doesn't mean a thing. And I think what honor does is honor sort of is a recognition that things have significance rules have significance, actions have significance, beyond the immediacy of the action itself, I'll say. So when you are acting in an honorable way, you are committing yourself to a non-negotiable value that exists outside of the moment or beyond the moment or beyond the action. And I think that does create a sense of what you call continuity through time and a continuity of self and also, at least in the sense of the military, ideally continuity of institution. You have these military values that do change and, you know, change through time and also change for political reasons or social reasons. But what doesn't change or what shouldn't change is the commitment to following them and the sense of their importance beyond just being a sort of negotiable, atomistic data point that you can toss away or ignore if you feel like it in the situation. And in fact, the army itself defines honor as something that embodies all of the other quote-unquote army values. It's sort of like this current of electricity that sort of runs through all the other values and sort of gives them life. None of the other army values, you know, courage, whatever, would mean anything if it didn't have this sustaining sense of honor. I think most civilians, if you talk to them, they would associate honor with probably stupidity. They would associate it, you know, with like duels or something like that. But I think really there's something to be said for the kind of commitment honor suggests. And I haven't really experienced that kind of commitment in the civilian world. Yeah, and that difference seems to be of great importance and at the same time unbridgeable. Even a country as modern and as free as America needs a military. Americans are free and that means that the military is free as well. You sign up or you don't. Nobody's going to force you. But it also suggests something, therefore, that some people look at America and think, you know what, I would rather go somewhere where I'm risking my life. That's never talked about, but you wouldn't be able to find enough people to man an army if there weren't people who prefer the hell of it to America. That is a strange thing, but it would make perfect sense if, on the other hand, you thought about it. War is not just hell. The military is also a place of honor, and there are men who put more stake in honor than they do in various comforts or advantages. Maybe not a lot, but apparently enough to staff quite a sizable fighting force. And it's not at all clear that there aren't more people yearning for that. It's certainly obvious in a lot of things, some sane and some crazy, that young men do in America. The more they're told to live by freedom, the more they turn to various sorts of associations which, crazy as they may seem, are all about honor. It's just that they are denied the authority and the guidance that the military does offer. This is not to say that the American military is perfect or that it's getting there either, but it is very, very different in light of this character. That points to the political aspect of honor, which is I can't claim honor for myself, by myself. It's not a matter of freedom. You can identify as whatever you want to identify in free America, but you can't identify as honorable. Honorable depends on other people, not on you. It's about how other people see you and how other people treat you. 
you have a right to your honor if you behave honorably, but you cannot bestow it for yourself. You depend on other people for that. It is inherently, today I guess we would say a social thing or cultural, but these words do not adequately comprehend how political this thing is. How full of ruling and being ruled, of accepting authority and of exerting authority. Everything that is mandated and life in the military seems far more mandated than life is for civilians. Well, all those mandates, all those compulsions also have this other character to them at the same time of being acts of honor. You are required to do certain things and people are required to do certain things in return, down to the military salute. No man is above returning a salute, no man is below offering one. Civilian life just isn't like that. Far less is mandated, required, compulsory, and also far less is really offered or guaranteed or reliable. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think when you're talking about the social aspect of honor or the political aspect of honor, it requires the recognition of a community in order to fully come into itself. One person can have a code of honor that they follow, but if no one else around them follows it as well, then like me, they're just a person in New York yelling at a guy in a subway. And it doesn't really mean as much as it would mean if, for instance, you were on a military base and someone denigrated a woman and you stood up to them then that would be recognized. So it would have a social context that it would fit into, and people would understand what was happening. In some way, honor itself is in this reciprocal relationship with community. I don't know if it's possible to have a community without having some sense of honor, some code of honor. And I don't know if it's possible to really have a fully fleshed out sense of honor without a community to create the structure in which it flourishes. Yeah, I think that at least this uh, latter part is obvious. A man can't come up with his code of honor. A man can't even come up with his own language. These are things that we are brought up with. You know, they're not beyond choice, since obviously we have come to a world that is dishonored. That was to an extent by choice and to an extent simply by insisting too much on choice. But honor does have to be chosen to some extent. It's just that it pre-exists choice. It belongs to the community in a way in which it doesn't to the individual. Yeah, I think that's something that's actually very, very much, uh, it, it isn't It isn't often, I think the American emphasis on individuality exists in direct opposition to honor and the way that you're talking about it. And I'm thinking here of the D.H. Lawrence quote about the American soul being fundamentally isolated. And I think that's true. I think you, you see a lot in American art, literature, movies, whatever, that people do think that they've come up with their own, their, you know, a man with a code. You know, you see a man walking through the West and he's got a code of honor. No one else quite understands it, right? Well, is that really honor? You know, and I think in some ways that sense of the isolated individual, you know, having a sense of honor is, you know, no different from people who think honor is stupid. And I think there's some sort of connection between the two. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, America's literature, America's founding mythology, the mythology of the founding of America is the Western. It starts in upstate New York with, uh, you know, the last of the Mohicans or something like that. Mm -hmm. Moves all the way to California over 150 years or so. Eventually, it's the movies, the great Westerns of John Ford. And there you do see all the time that men of honor might, for example, be terrifying. They might not be nice guys. They might not play by moral rules. You also see that they are in a certain way an endangered species. Partly that's what men pursue by going out west, but eventually honor compels them, since it doesn't belong to them, to install law and order. But when once that's done, the peculiar freedom of the honorable man goes away. When once law and order are installed, everybody is reduced within certain limits. And you cannot take away from honor the fact that it makes some claim to greatness. Fearlessness in face of death is the most obvious part of it. And that's a rare quality, and in a way it's getting rarer all the time. Neither administration nor technology nor commerce favor it. Indeed, it's the other way around. And honor also seems to have an incredibly anti-democratic character. You can see that because in democracy we're continuously prodded by our fears, whether it's the market or politicians. They're forever trying to tell us to be afraid of everything from the end of the world to the consequences of a bad diet for our health to whatever. Everything has to be a matter of fear and only fear will keep us under the tyranny of the doctor who will keep us long-lived, safe and comfortable.
And of course, there's this entire other aspect of it, the fear of missing out. Are you getting enough out of life to justify to you your mortality? You cannot have any thinking about honor in those terms. Honor would require you to think about what it is that you actually do need and how you're going to get it and leave it at that, not how much there is to have or what the opportunities are. Nor, on the other hand, would it mean shrinking from danger in the hope of making it to 90 healthy and without pain. So it does seem to be an endangered way of thinking, it doesn't simply belong in modernity. It's more like the situation of the military, which means if you're American, but you don't really feel like you could really live in a civilian America, there's this other option. <laughs> there's going to be some dying involved. People still take that option because it's better than being a civilian. And why would it be better for them? Well, it would seem to be because their honor is actually recognized and compelled. Not everybody is that guy, but everybody has to act like that guy according to the rules. So you could say that in that sense, the military and civilian America push in opposite directions. Americans aren't dishonored or not simply, and the military is not simply all about honor, but they push in opposite directions. So, you know, reading through your book, I thought, okay, how about this silly kind of civilian life where you live by desires that you want to satisfy? Surely there's honor involved in that, in the attempt to distinguish oneself by success and to earn the approval of others, but also in basic things like contracts. In a modern society, everything is decided by contracts and that guarantees equality. So that's a matter of honor. You don't have to give somebody stuff unless they pay for it. And if you pay for stuff, you have a right to get the stuff you paid for. You can't be humiliated. So that's a kind of honor. But also something else, the desire to keep one's word, the desire to live up to the contract. That's in a small way a matter of honor. It's not simply a matter of advantage because it would be sometimes advantageous to break the contract to get away with a crime. Sometimes the fines you pay don't really compare with the advantages you could steal, but it would be dishonorable. Yeah, and that seems right to me. But I think I would say the America that you're describing with this emphasis on contractual agreements and, and things like that, I feel, I can't help but feel that it's decayed or decaying. And I think if that, that sort of decay is tied to being out of touch with the military as well, I think you're right. I think there are different kinds of honor. And there are different honor systems. And there's sort of this middle class honor. And it has its own value system and its own um, sense of the world. But I think even that is sort of under threat in a lot of ways. I mean, contracts, of course, still carry a lot of meaning. But I think perhaps not even as much as they used to. And by that, I mean, if I sign a contract with a corporation, the corporation can easily get out of the contract and will at the first advantageous moment. I can't. You know, I think there was a time in American history where that wasn't necessarily true. And I can't help but feel that this sense of the decline of the middle class goes hand in hand with the decline of a recognition of martial values. Yeah, so it would seem honor is what protects your freedom. But it's your freedom as a citizen. It's your freedom as an American, not as an individual making choices. Right. It's more emphatically political. It's what we all feel if we think, you know, hey, you can't treat me that way. You can't do that to me. People don't need long studies of the theory of natural rights or spending years reading the founders to start shouting, hey, I have my rights. Uh, yeah. People spontaneously believe in their natural rights. And in a certain way, equality is a matter of honor because it's an achievement. You have to protect it against dangerous forces, including indeed these immense corporations to which so many young Americans now turn to get an identity. Right. Because there's more honor in imitating you know, the sillinesses about superheroes than there is in other things. Just like so many young men in America faced with this dishonor society turned to the fantasies of computer games where guess what? Honor always works. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that with the kind of honor, well, with any kind of honor, there are certain rights that are afforded to you, like you say, or the, the suggestion that everyone has some intrinsic value and, you know, you can't treat someone a certain way. Those hinge upon responsibilities as well. And I think the problem that we see now with honor in contemporary society is that honor is predicated upon your responsibilities to the community. And when those are de-emphasized, your honor is de-emphasized. So, for instance, boy children who are more interested in fantasies than in the real world are interested in sort of a fantastical kind of honor, secondhand comic book honor. But I think they're also not interested in any true responsibility as a citizen or as a human. 
Yeah, so there seem to be indeed very serious problems because it's not obvious in the America that's actually out there in 2019 that there are honorable paths to success or that honor succeeds as honor. Not in the sense that it's gonna make you a star or celebrity or a politician or a media figure or a rich guy, but in the sense that people will see that you're a good man because you're a man that will be approved of or even required in a way that this is what America needs. It's not obvious that that's so anymore. It's not obvious what the rules for success are or that if there are any rules that they are at all honorable. And that indeed is driving a lot of people into fantasy or hysteria. Right. I think that people who produce things and people who engage in contracts are negotiating the production of certain goods are able to acquire honor or to have an honor system. But I don't know if someone who is purely a consumer is able to be honorable or to have honor. I don't know if it's possible for someone who's defined, who's existentially defined through consumption for them to have any connection with an honor system. Yeah, that's a big problem and it would require indeed the creation again of communities, that is to say people who live together because they need each other and can help each other and actually do it. That goes to what you were pointing out earlier. In some sense, honor and honor's rights are earned and everybody knows it. I would say that one big difference is that honor gives people a sense of predictability and otherwise our lives are really too obviously caught up in chance events that precludes honor and it precludes a sense of assuredness of manly confidence. That's how we end up with the tendency for enthusiasm and hysteria moving in cycles. What you say about living in a world of chance and how honor creates some sense of continuity, not just through history or time, but moment to moment existentially. I think that sense of contingency is obviously heightened during a time of war. I mean, war is, it's a cliche to say it, but it is absolute chaos. The more you try to control it, the more it's obvious, you know, where the breakdowns happen and that you're not in control and that it's sort of this thing that just sort of you try to prepare yourself for. And then when it happens, you react. You're very reactive. You're not as proactive ever as you'd like to be. Clausewitz, you know, coined the phrase the fog of war, which is so famous. But in my book, I write in the chapter on honor that would it be okay if I just read a section, a couple of paragraphs that relate to what you're talking about? Of course, please do. Okay. The fog of war that settles on the battlefield can be a literal fog, a blanketing by the elements which mutes or distorts the senses. You might not be able to tell where sounds are emanating from. Dust covers friendly positions. And in Iraq, enemy and non-enemy blend into one another, occasionally changing roles and taking places. But there's also a figurative fog that covers everything, which can accurately be described as a moral chaos. I imagine this chaos has more psychological as well as physical room to expand into non-conventional war where the moral calculus is complicated by the battlefield being temporarily and yet almost perpetually placed in the middle of a civilian area. Now that the line between wartime and peacetime, between the front and the rear, has evaporated, it doesn't help that we've also convinced ourselves to rely so heavily on rational and technical controls, things such as official rules of engagement and high-end optics and blue force trackers to tell friend and foe apart. The military world is just as inundated with a technocratic mindset as the civilian world, if not more so. The guidelines fail, technology fails, the rules fail, and so honor is there, a bright seam of energy running through the opacity of combat, which we can rely on almost like a moral failsafe. And so I think that just goes back to what you're saying. In a world where things do break down, I think that's the purpose of honor. It doesn't break down. Yes, indeed. That's a very good passage. And I think that it gets to something that word discloses about all the really shocking things that happen even during peacetime. When once you become urgently aware of an unfixable problem, of a looming crisis, something that you can't wish away or wait out, then you have to act. And you have to act in the face of uncertainty, in the face of what's unpredictable and perhaps not controllable. So what have you got then? Right. The strange powers we have at our disposal through technology, commerce, our institutions are nothing to sneeze at. But what happens when they break down? America used to have action movies to remind people of that, that the safety, the peaceful prosperity of uh, the American cities now and then goes to hell. And all those manly virtues are going to be necessary all over again. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this doesn't just happen in war. I mean, the uh, institutions of society temporarily break down all the time. It just so happens that the situation is, is kind of highlighted during war. Sometimes during training, we were made to turn off all our electronic equipment. 
and proceed as if nothing worked. And then you would just have to sort of go from there and adjust to the situation. You know, it's easy to overcome technical problems. It may be uncomfortable, but it's not impossible. But what we always had during those training scenarios was this sense of, I don't want to say propriety, but it was a sense of, well, we're just going to carry on as usual because everyone knows their job. Everyone knows their role. Everyone knows their responsibilities to come back to that. So things were a little more difficult. It was annoying, but the job got done. And I think there was more than just a little bit of relying on honor to survive, to fulfill a mission. Yeah, that's a good point. What if at some level we're aware of the fact that if things go south, we don't really know where to turn to or to whom to turn to or how to deal with them? A lot of the madness begins to make more sense if you realize that people are only a few steps away from panic because they are too aware. If things stop working, we don't really know how to deal with anything. In a way, it's an experience going on 20 years now of things of great importance going to hell suddenly, whether it's wars or political drama or economic crisis or another economic crisis or whatever else. What is anybody going to be doing about this stuff? Whose fault is it? Whose responsibility is it? Who's going to help fix things? Where can you turn? Well, these are all very good questions, but we don't have any good answers to go with them. The bouts of insanity are more explainable, I think, in this way. Moral uncertainty is really, really hard to deal with. Political uncertainty, much more so. It's way easier if you think maybe I'm going crazy, but you think there are other people who are sane. If you're dealing with a situation where you don't know who has any idea what the hell is going to happen in another year or so, then, you know, that's really hard to live down. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Scott, I think this about wraps our first conversation on these serious matters. And I want to thank you again for showing up on the podcast and talking about these things and writing about your experiences in a way that makes sense to me as a civilian. It's not something I can have any direct access to, and I'm not eager to go around all that chaos. But I am aware of what a serious thing it is, and so I'm very grateful for your friendship, first of all, in helping me understand these things. So please, folks, if you've enjoyed our conversation, just go on Amazon, look for Scott Beauchamp. Did you kill anyone? It's already available for ordering, and it'll be out come February 1st, 2020. Thank you so much for, for having me again, and thank you for your kind words and your friendship. And yeah, it's always a pleasure to be on here, and it's a pleasure to talk to you about these really important topics. I hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Yes, we certainly will. All the best, Scott. Bye-bye. Bye.